This is Michael Cohen, and you're listening to the Mayor Culpa podcast. A new polling shows a swing back toward Democratic candidates ahead of November's midterm elections. It is the latest survey from NPR, PBS NewsHour, and Marist. 48% of voters say if the midterms were held today, they would more likely to vote for the Democratic candidate. 41% say they would vote Republican. That's a one-point increase for Democrats since last month and overall a 10-point swing from April when 47% said they would back the Republican candidate. If last Tuesday's primaries are any indication of how the 2022 midterm elections will go, Democrats now have reason to be cautiously optimistic. This doesn't mean that any of us can rest until after the November election, but if we stay on message and get out the vote, Democrats have a shot at keeping both the House and the Senate. Despite Biden's low approval ratings, despite inflation, gas prices, and the standoff at Mar-a-Lago, Americans now seem to understand what's really at stake. And the message is clear. Abortion is on the ballot and democracy is on the line. So I'll say that again. Abortion is on the ballot and democracy is on the line. Lather, rinse, repeat. But in light of recent events in Washington, like the Supreme Court's reversal of Roe, we're starting to see signs that the political momentum around the country has shifted. Couple takeaways from Tuesday's primaries in New York, Florida, and Oklahoma. Overall moderate and establishment candidates won, leaving far-right radicals and left-of-center progressives pretty much in the dust. Also, redistricting didn't turn out to be the total bloodbath for Democrats that was earlier predicted. It was painful in the case of New York's 10th district, where Democrat Jerry Nadler beat his longtime ally and fellow Democrat Carolyn Maloney, but not devastating. New York is losing some mm-hmm. of its uh, its cachet there in D.C. For Congresswoman Carol Maloney tonight means uh, nearly three decades in D.C. are coming to a close. Former U.S. attorney and prosecutor during Trump's first impeachment trial, Daniel Goldman, spent five million of his own cash and just barely won the Democratic nomination for an open house seat in New York. However, beating fellow Democrats was probably Goldman's biggest challenge this election cycle because he's set to run against Benny Hamden, a basically unknown Republican in November, for a seat that covers parts of both Brooklyn and Manhattan. And if there aren't liberals there, there aren't liberals anywhere. And in Tuesday's most closely watched race, Democrat Pat Ryan, an Ulster County executive and a combat vet, won the House special vote in New York's Hudson Valley 19th District against Republican Mark Molinaro. When the Supreme Court ripped away reproductive freedoms, access to abortion rights, we said this is not what America stands for. That is Democrat Pat Ryan moments after clinching victory in a special election for New York's 19th U.S. Congressional District. This contest was considered a bellwether race because Ryan ran on broadly Democratic issues like abortion access and voters' rights for all. 
While his Republican challenger focused mainly on crime, inflation, and the price of baby formula, which was apparently not a winning formula, but the issues important in this race give us a strong indication of what's to come nationally as we run up to November. And don't forget, abortion is on the ballot and democracy is on the line. So like I said before, lather, rinse, repeat. Our democracy is on the ballot in this year's midterm elections with election deniers backed by former President Donald Trump running all across the country. In fact, the new NBC News poll found that threats to democracy has overtaken cost of living as the most important issue facing the country in the eyes of voters. But in some ways, the path to saving our democracy could run right through one state, Florida, home to the other Trump, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, who has run his state as an experiment in recreating Trumpism on steroids, weaponizing the culture wars at every turn. Heading now to Florida, where former Republican Charlie Crist won the Democratic nomination for governor, which will now pit him against Ron Top Gun DeSantis. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. This is your governor speaking. Today's training evolution, dogfighting. Who can say if DeSantis will continue to shoot himself in the foot with stupid fucking ads and anti-woke rhetoric? He's got a huge war chest and poll numbers to burn. But if ever there was a moderate I wanted to see win in November, it's Charlie Crist. Other consequential races in Florida include former Orlando Chief of Police Val Demings' senatorial race against the incumbent and sniveling fucking moron Marco Rubio. Polls show them running neck and neck, but Rubio has one of the worst attendance records in the Senate. So let's hope Demings takes that fact to the back and beats the pants off of him. Weaponizing the culture wars at every turn. Last week, he took his presidential bid in waiting to Pennsylvania, campaigning for election-denying candidate for governor, Doug Mastriano. We must fight the woke in our schools. We must fight the woke in our businesses. We must fight the woke in government agencies. The results of Florida's 11th district were definitely too close for comfort for Republican Daniel Webster, as his primary challenger, far-right Muslim hater Laura Loomer, came within seven percentage points of defeating him. So for that, I say yikes. I want to see them go as far right as possible and then go even further right than that. But one standout in Florida is the sincere and energetic Maxwell Frost. At 25 years old, he will most likely be the youngest member in the House come 2023. Frost, a strong ally of David Hogg and the Parkland kids, ran on the winning combination of gun safety and equality for all. He also stands in strong defiance of DeSantis, so we can't help but cheer him on. Check the kid out at frostforcongress.com. Uh, what is your number one issue going into the voting tomorrow? You know, for me, it has to be ending gun violence. I mean, for folks who don't know, the leading cause of death for children recently went from automobiles to gun violence. And so our children are literally on the front lines of this. This is something my community is facing on a daily basis that's been going up every day. And we have to do something about it. We have to ensure that people have the right to live and live free of violence. And finally, because Florida is Florida and the wheels of justice turn too damn slow, sex trafficker Matt 
Gates easily won his primary in Florida's MAGA-infested first district by spending millions of dollars in playing up his Trump endorsement. But his Democratic challenger, Rebecca Jones, has something in common with Gates. They will both face legal trouble while on the campaign trail leading up to November. Jones, a whistleblower who exposed the state's manipulation of early COVID-19 data, was fired from her position at the Florida Department of Health. Her house was then raided and eventually she was charged with a felony, accusing her of illegally accessing the state computer system to send an emergency alert, calling on all state employees to speak out on COVID-19. Jones has denied any wrongdoing, and so has Matt Gates. Perhaps this election will be decided by a judge, but I'm thinking Matt Gates for jail in 2022 would make a really nice fucking bumper sticker. As you said, the largest purveyor of disinformation is oftentimes the national security apparatus of our own government. We saw that with the Russian dossier. We saw that with the phony effort to uh, impeach President Trump over the Ukraine hoax. And then we see it again in the effort to diminish the national security threat of the Hunter Biden laptop. Now, not a newsflash, but Oklahoma will stay red indefinitely. In the Senate special election to replace retiring Senator James Inhofe, Mark Wayne Mullen and T.W. Shannon are in a Republican special primary runoff. The Republican that wins in November will then hold Inhofe's old seat until January of 2027. FYI, a recent study found that Oklahoma is considered the worst fucking state to live in for women, highlighting poor outcomes in nearly every metric, including poverty, voter turnout, and life expectancy. So, Oklahoma, not okay. Comes sweeping down the plain, and the waving wheat can sure smell sweet when the wind. Update Lindsey Graham was back in court on Wednesday trying to overturn his subpoena in the 2020 election fraud case in Fulton County, Georgia, and confused the court with bizarre legal ease. After a judge last Thursday denied Graham's request to quash the subpoena outright, an appeals court on Sunday paused the ruling. Now Miss Lindsay is back in court fighting for his right not to talk to Fannie Willis and her special grand jury. You can run Lindsey Graham, but she cannot hide. Nunez. We never thought Georgia would would go for Biden, and I, I know for a fact it didn't. The Illuminati, the elites, they use the Wizard of Oz to mind control child slaves. We have to have Nunez here, because there has to be at least one person who tells the truth. Nunez. I believe in a far-right authoritarian government. No, I am not a fascist. Donald Trump is the messiah of America. I want them to be able to actually protect themselves against real threats and kick some ass out there and maybe intervene when a school shooter comes and shoots their asses. Please come back wherever you are. 
We need someone who's going to tell the truth. And not that I want to talk about Trump, but that's all anyone is talking about. So it's now been established that Trump has been in a standoff with the National Archives for over a year. Letters were sent and finally a subpoena, and yet Donald did nothing. That's what he keeps saying. I did nothing. Plain to see how he screwed with our democracy. Binging Big Macs while he watched TV. This just ain't on our history. The search and seizure of documents at Mar-a-Lardo was just the last straw. But since then, Trump has raised over a million dollars a day. I mean, folks, think about it. A fucking million dollars a day. There's nothing like fundraising on your own fuck-ups. And I'm sure he'd like to keep the gravy train running. So this week, he's done a lot of stupid stuff to keep himself in the news. His advisor, John Solomon, sent out a letter that was supposed to be somehow damning to Biden. But it just makes Trump look like a fucking asshole who stole shit from the National Archives. In fact, he stole it from the American people. Great. Also, his lawyers, if that's what you want to call any of them, made a request that a special master oversee the processing of the 700 documents that he squirreled away. Now, said request read more like a press release than a legal document. And according to the New York Times, Justice Department officials assume they can't rely on anything Trump's lawyers say, given Trump's volatility as a client and the incompetency of his lawyers. Trump continues to wage a public relations war against the Justice Department. That is, all his MAGA lemmings send death threats to anyone in law enforcement who dares even glance in Donald's direction. So much for back in the blue, but hey, this is just another one of those stories where the good guys get fucked by Donald Trump. Until they don't. So tick, tick, tick. It's coming slowly, folks, but it is coming. And then... And now for the main event. Today we welcome a special guest to the show, the former Oath Keeper who testified before the January 6th committee, Jason Van Tattenhove. A one-time tattoo shop owner, Van Tattenhove studied fine art in college and as a journalist in 2014. He embedded with the Oath Keepers while following the story of Clive and Bundy and the rancher's standoff with law enforcement. Later, Jason went on to become the Oath Keepers national media director. But after being silenced by the Oath Keepers leader, Stuart Rhodes, for his support of same-sex marriage, Van Tattenhove distanced himself from the group. He did not attend to support the January 6th insurrection, but he did the country a great service when he testified to the committee, helping us all understand more about the inner workings of extremist paramilitary groups like the Oath Keepers, the Proud Boys. Today, Jason hosts a podcast and still writes weekly articles for the Colorado Switchblade. 
He also has a new book coming out in February 2023 entitled The Perils of Extremism, How I Left the Oath Keepers and Why We Should Be Concerned About a Future Civil War. So let's go now to that conversation. Okay, so Jason, you and I have several things in common. We both worked for and befriended charismatic leaders, and at some point, we, we both woke up. You were with Stuart Rhodes, founder of the Oath Keepers, and I with his boss, Donald Trump. Now, I came to my senses in jail. Didn't your moment of reckoning have something to do with Holocaust deniers within your group? It did. Um, it was uh, close to five years ago. And um, I walked into a conversation that was being had at a local grocery store we were living up on the Canadian border um, in Montana. And some key members of the Oath Keepers were there um, and some associates. And they were openly discussing how the Holocaust had never happened. Now, I have family members that are Jewish. And, you know, I, I kind of came into the whole Oath Keepers scene before they started courting the alt-right. Um, and moving towards this more uh, you know, very hard bent. So, uh, yeah, I, I when I walked into that, I, I just I went home and told my wife, who is medically disabled, my two daughters, look, we've I don't know how we're going to financially survive this, but we can no longer continue doing what we're doing. And uh, that was the start of me getting out. What was it specifically that they said? And, you know, which which one of your family members are Jewish? So my, my cousin Sarah and my aunt Robin, they married into the family. Um, and they uh, actually, my cousin Sarah was there with me at the, um, the hearing. And uh, we spent the day before going to the National Holocaust Museum. Um, you know, and I remember having blended holidays when we were kids. You know, when we were kids, these, you know, my, my cousin Sarah and I have known since I was four years old. And, um, you know, we, we would do menorah lightings during the uh, Christmas holiday and, and, you know, they would do our, our Christmas traditions. And so we I came from a blended family. You know, what's amazing. I don't know if you know this. My father is a Holocaust survivor. My father was born in um, an area outside of Krakow, Poland, an area called Bochnia. And unfortunately, you know, uh, at the age of seven is when the gigantic raid of the you know third reich came into poland and so on and um one thing that i think so many of these anti-semitic conspiracy theorists right these holocaust deniers um fail to acknowledge is it wasn't just jews who were killed by the germans if nope. you were old and feeble they killed you if there was something um if you if you had down syndrome they killed you if they didn't believe you to be, um, you know, perfect. More than six million non-Jews also died. So what about the memory of these people? What, I mean, do they not acknowledge that World War II existed? Well, it's a very selective story, that's for sure. And, you know, I, I would certainly find myself on one of those lists. I think, you know, if if your former boss had his way, we may see some of that type of stuff. I mean, he's always talking about the losers, right? So, you know, who are the losers? I think a, a lot of the people that were in those categories might fall into to what your, your former boss might say is, is losers. 
Yeah, which I fully understand, and, and, I, and I get, and I agree with you. I know where you're going to go. We're on a very dangerous path right now in democracy in this country, and we're looking very authoritarian. We're looking very fascist, like they did in, um, you know, World War II. Um, so, yes, I totally agree with you. But I'm, I'm, I just want to stay on this point because I find it fascinating. You with all due respect, you don't look as if though you would walk away from an organization simply because um, they are Holocaust deniers. I'm just so curious as to what the exact conversation was and did you say anything to them? Did you, you know, say, how are you arguing with history? It's not as if though you know, someone can turn around and just say, oh, my God, right, uh, this was done in a Hollywood set, like the, you know, the, consp- the conspiracy theorists for the moon landing, right? We're talking about archived documentaries, the structures where it all took place still exist. Oh, yeah. Right? So what is it that they're denying? I'm just, I'm fascinated by the, the, the- denial. Well, I actually did say something. I said, how how can you say that? I mean, history is there to which they they began taking a tact of, um, well, if it if it did happen, it was greatly exaggerated. And then they tried to flip the script with saying that actually Americans had concentration camps where the numbers were were greatly exaggerated. I mean, this is just crazy land. These people, it's almost a cognitive dissonance. And, you know, once you start drinking the Kool-Aid of conspiracy theory, um, you know, it, it, it just gets so, so extreme so quickly, um, you know, and it, it can start something as innocuous as I've got a healthy distrust of the government. I mean, that's what started me down the path into, you know, that took me to becoming the national media director for the Oath Keepers. It was, hey, you know, Waco happened. Ruby Rigid happened. And when Bundy Ranch manifested, we really just, you know, the, the, the main impetus for, for heading out there was we don't want to see another family taken out by the federal government. So we had this organic uprising of people just leaving what they were doing and going out there. Now that got hijacked and, you know, used for, for other purposes. And, and Stuart, I think, really found at that point, oh, wait, I can... I can fundraise a whole lot of money off of, you know, these types of events and began inserting himself into different events that were happening, you know, uh, up in the Pacific Northwest and the, the, the Southwest as well. Yeah. You know, look, that's an interesting concept, a healthy distrust of government. I have a healthy distrust of government. I still well, do. And as do I in my next book, which is coming out, which is called Revenge, How Donald Trump Weaponized the U.S. Department of Justice to Go Against His Critics. I hope you read the book, but one well, got, of the things I got that, your first one right here on my desk with me. Oh, dis, I, oh uh, disloyal. Yeah. So <laughs> if you, if, when you read the second book, you'll understand my healthy distrust. So many of the counts that I was forced to plead guilty to I just didn't commit. And what I do is I walk people through. And not because it's about me, right? I'm doing it because if the government can do it to me, 
They could certainly do it to you, including an unconstitutional remand back to prison because I refuse to waive my First Amendment constitutional right and not publish the book that you have in your hand. Um, that's not a reason that you send somebody to prison, basically making me the first political prisoner held by my own country because I wouldn't waive my constitutional right. That's not what government is supposed to be about. And my goal is to try to impress upon people that when you have somebody like Donald Trump, when you have a Stuart Rhodes, right, charismatic people, and these people come into power, the way that they handle the power, the way that they abuse power for their own benefit, I was just a test run. And that's the point I'm trying to make, that again, if they could do this to me, and I had a mouthpiece, I had, you know, quite a, a lot of eyeballs on me, think about what they could do to you. Yeah. Yeah. And I think what, what's really scary about the, the situation is that that model has now been put out there and other politicians are now beginning to grab onto it. We're seeing this rise of, you know, the, the folks that Trump has influenced that really they're using the same playbook. And I think that's going to be a, a dramatic departure for the way democracy is run to this point. Um, and, and I think that there are so many similarities when I've been reading your book, um, I can't tell you how many times I thought to myself, man, this sounds just like Stuart. This sounds like behavior patterns, like, you know, that literally cut from a similar cloth. Um, and uh, that, that to me was very eye-opening. And the fact that they were, you know, so actively trying to, to work with one another so quickly and, and for what aims. No, no aims. That's the problem. You know, the aim is simply to grift off of the group to financially benefit themselves. They are all narcissistic sociopaths uh, who have a overinflated ego of themselves. Yeah, let me ask you a question. Stuart Rhodes, do you know where he went to school? Did he go to college? Oh, yeah. He's a, he's a Yale-educated attorney. Yeah. Could you imagine? And could you imagine? It was the point I was trying to bring up, right? This is not a stupid guy. This is just a guy with a very, very twisted sense of himself. And, um, you know, unfortunately, he's smart enough to have figured out. Now, I wish I could say the same thing with Trump. Trump will tell you he's got a big brain, right? That not only does he have a he went to the best school. Yes, because daddy bought you into the school. And if you listen to him, right? And so many people make fun of it on TikTok and Twitter and Instagram because it's so easy. His vocabulary is that of a fifth grader at best, a stupid fifth grader, right? And very different than Stuart Rhodes, very different than a Ron DeSantis and a Josh Hawley. I mean, these are all educated, highly educated, intelligent people that have the ability to twist reality and sort of ensure that a group of supporters stay loyal to him. It's amazing. It, it, it really is. And I think you really get that at the heart of it. The, my, the book I'm working, I'm working on a book for Skyhorse as well. And um, the original working title was The Propagandist Selling the Revolution, because this really is a grift when it comes down to these guys. They're, they're 
furthering their own agenda at all costs. And they don't care who gets discarded along the way, whose lives get shattered along the way. It That never it, it re- figures into their reasoning. So I, I think the other common theme we see with a lot of this is that grift factor that they are really pulling a, a, a great grift. Yeah. And there's nothing that as many times as I scream and shout on this podcast or out of my window, Hey America, wake the fuck up. Right. I mean, you're taking your hard earned dollars. You were taking your COVID relief money, right? And you're giving it to a guy who's a purported billionaire to a pack that if you read the fine print on it, he is permitted to use 90% at his own discretion. That, to me, is a grift. There's no much, question about it. How much money did he make just this week from after the FBI raid on fundraising? I mean, I've, I've read an article this morning. It's reported in the millions already. Yeah, it's already in the millions. Well, let me ask you this, Jason. Can you tell our listeners more about the dark worldview within within groups like the Oath Keepers that led up to their involvement in the January 6th insurrection? It, it really starts with uh, the, the weaponization of conspiracy theory. Um, if you look at, and, and I really can only speak competently on the Oath Keepers. The other groups, I don't really have much life experience with. I did have an inside view of the Oath Keepers for a period of time. But what I can tell you is, and, and from what I've seen, this is this is fairly across the board, but you know, specifically with the Oath Keepers, so much of it starts with conspiracy theory. And you know, that conspiracy theory generally needs to have a seed of truth to it in the beginning, because that kind of gives it a, a cloak of invisibility and uh, allows things to go from, you know, something that reasonable Americans can, can agree with, like a healthy distrust of the government, and then, you know, quickly move to much more radical views. Um, so I think really, you know, if you look at the Oath Keepers with their, their original web page postings and their messaging back during the Bundy Ranch period, that was all tied up in what was called a J- the Jade Helm conspiracy theory, which really kind of wrapped up in these UN uh, joint military practices that were happening down in, in Texas. Um, and it didn't take long for that to kind of fold into the the belief that they were going to be using abandoned Walmarts to round up conservative gun owners and put them into education, you know, uh, concentration camp type scenarios. And that's what Stuart was using as his original. These are orders we will not follow. So, you know, and, and what's so bizarre about it, you know, is that they've they flipped the script. We have guys that I've walked into conversations literally denying the actual Holocaust and actual concentration camps with where so many countless people died. And they're they're trying to use the same messaging saying that it's going to happen here. I, I, I don't know how that jives with people. I don't know how that people can reconcile that, but they can. And, you know, it, I, I think it all has to do with this this embrace and weaponization of conspiracy theory and and misinformation. You know what's amazing, too, is many of the people that you heard spewing the Holocaust denial have family members that fought in World War II. That thanks to them, the camps were liberated. Thanks to them, the Jewish people still exist. And yet they deny it. It's truly 
It's fascinating. Tell me something. The people that were making these statements, the Holocaust deniers, are these disenfranchised people? Because look, Stuart Rhodes, as you stated, Yale graduate, lawyer. And so where did you, now you were originally from Colorado. Where did you go? Because you are, you are highly articulate. And again, it's such a misperception from, and I want my listeners to hear this and hear it very clearly. Everybody thinks that these um, disenfranchised groups, these uh, armed revolutionaries, right? The uh, Oath Keepers, the Proud Boys, and so on, that they're really just a bunch of trailer park trash that, you know, saved up enough money flipping burgers at the local hamburger joint to buy, you know, an AR-15, and they're basically uneducated high school dropouts. It's not true. No, but I'm, I'm not a good example. I Yes, I grew up in Colorado. I went to three different universities. Um, I, uh, I dropped out of all three, but it was all for art school. But I come from the same place you come from. I come from originally northern New Jersey, New York City area. Um, my grandfather was one of the artists in the abstract expressionist movement. He used to be represented by the Sculpture Center in, in New York City. So I came from a very left bohemian lifestyle, you know, that kind of East Coast artist uh, writer scene. Um, and then we moved out to Colorado after my parents went through divorce and, and my mother remarried a rock star Jedi Knight computer programmer. He was doing R&D work for Hewlett Packard um, and helped develop a lot of the MP3 algorithms that we use today. So I've had a very different you know, life experience in most people. I originally went and plugged in with the Oath Keepers at the Bundy Ranch because I wanted to cover the story. I've always been kind of a DIY punk rock journalist. I still mm -hmm. do it to this day with my Substack. And, um, you know, I went out there, I made some calls. And by the end of the day, I had been embedded in with Stuart Rhodes's vehicle as he was going back down the Bundy Ranch for the second time. I was doing uh, radio coverage for a small little internet outlet called revolution radio freedomslips.com and um you know i i covered bundy ranch and i covered the white hope mine in, or sugar pine mine was the next one which was up in uh, grants pass oregon and then the white hope mine which was in uh lincoln montana where you know ted gazinski infamy uh that's where he lived they had to stand mm -hmm. off there as well um at that point i had helped them with a, a press release um, just with the organization because they had a, a so-called PIO, public information officer, but they didn't know how to actually put together a press release. So they had asked me, could you help her organize that? And I said, sure, but you can't put my name on it. Well, of course, my name was put on it. I had also had a day job with the the state of Montana and their Department of Livestock at the time. And, of course, got a call six in the morning from my bureau chief screaming at me, you know, your na name's on every newspaper in the, the world right now. So, um, you know, I'm not your typical militia guy. And uh, to be honest with you, when I first started plugging in with the Oath Keepers, I, I saw it almost as one of my most influential um, people in my life growing up was Hunter Thompson, Hunter S. Thompson with the uh, Hell's Angels novel. And uh, I kind of saw it as an opportunity to 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 really plug into a story that the world was someday going to want to to know. Um, now, I will be the first to say that, you know, with my best intentions that I had, I fucked that up fabulously. And, you know, uh, I did begin to drink the Kool-Aid. I, I was in these echo chambers and definitely began to to believe some of these conspiracy theories to the point that, 
you know, when I finally had my reckoning with the the whole Holocaust denial episode, I mean, I didn't recognize myself anymore. And that helped to shake me out of kind of this, this, this spell you get put under that we put ourselves under. So, you know, I, I don't want to take away from the fact that I did drink the Kool-Aid. I did, you know, plug in because I did. And it's probably worse than a member because, you know, I helped to further that propaganda. You know, I helped make it two of us, my brother, make it two of us. But you know what? I think what our country needs right now more than anything, because we're not alone. We are not alone in that experience right now. Half the country may be reconsidering some of the crazy shit they started to believe. And we need to be able to show people there's an exit ramp. There's a, a kind of a, a way back from, fucking up fabulously and i think you know the 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 books that you're putting out the the stuff i'm putting out i think it's important because i think it gives a roadmap to people that might be where we were at one point and and show that oh wait a second i can get away from this i i i can no longer recognize myself in the mirror and i can i can reclaim my life you know, I constantly refer back to The Handmaid's Tale because oh, man. when I yeah. watched it, you start to scratch your head and then you actually get a little bit sick to your stomach as you start to see things like women's reproductive rights, women's liberties taken away. And what ends up happening, not more than, I was about two and a half years, don't forget, you know, I was not uh, in a place where... <laughs> They gave you streaming service, right? Uh, So I'm watching this, and then I start to see the similarities of what's going on right now with the overturning of Roe v. Wade with what will ultimately be the same thing for, you know, uh, like Obergefell. And I often sort of wonder, when you have a right, it kind of just becomes... A right. I have it. Therefore, it's mine and so on. But when something is taken away from you, especially I'm talking about now the younger generation, they're so used to having that right. And now it's not there anymore. I believe that this and other sort of stupid decisions that have been made, thankfully, by Republicans, according to at least what I watched this morning on CNN, it appears that Democrats will be able to hold the Senate and possibly, possibly even the House, which is amazing because six months ago, Democrats were dead in the water and everyone was fearful that it'd be the House and the Senate. And we know day number one, if that happened, Mitch McConnell, the dark overlord, what would he do? Immediately issue articles of impeachment against Biden and Kamala Harris, blaming everything from, you know, the um, extrication from Afghanistan all the way to oil prices, to the economy. Who knows? And then, of course, you have the Senate, and it's all payback. And this I don't understand either, right? It's all payback. They would actually confirm it, and we would then have yet another president who was impeached. Yeah, I mean, we the the Handmaid's Tale is such a cautionary tale, and it's it's really become almost like a playbook for some of the states in our country right now. And I I can't emphasize enough just what a scary period of of history we are in currently, and and really the 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 fate of our future, the fate of my daughters and my granddaughter. 
you know, a lot of what I look at with my my own redemption arc and and, you know, deciding to walk away from the things that I'd gotten sucked into was the fact that I have three daughters. I have a granddaughter and they're going to be inheriting this world. And, you know, thinking to myself, did I have an active part to play in fucking this up for them? And is there anything now I can do to make it a little better? What however little that might be. Um, you know, I, I've been doing, so I, I know how, you know, you can relate to this experience, but after my, um, January 6th, uh, hearing testimony, it just, the world opened up. I mean, I've done news interviews for Japan and Israel and just all over the world. And, you know, every week it's, it's, you know, several requests to send a camera crew up and, you know, documentary docu-series requests and and working with people on stuff like that. One of the things that I, at first I didn't want to do because I would get these calls from Texas and Florida um, and uh, wanting to do kind of my story. And at first I was like, oh, wait, I, no, I don't want to do that. You know, I, I don't agree with what they're doing politically. But then I thought to myself, well, shit, man, like that's where this messaging might have the most effect. So, you know, I think we've got to really reach out to the people, the, the, the citizens of those those states and just, you know, talk about the truth. And I think that we're, we are making some progress. As you said, the, the Democrats have picked up momentum. Um, I think just looking at the polling numbers before the January 6th Select Committee with Trump and, and where they are now, that we are seeing a, a, a marked effect. And we've just got to keep doing this. I do speaking engagements now with Georgetown Law. Um, with Mary McCord, she used to be an acting attorney for national security. Mm-hmm. She heads up their ICAP. And uh, so I go all over the, the country with her and uh, Georgetown Law and do talks, dinnertime talks with, um, you know, different uh, uh, nonprofit think tank people, uh, a lot of prosecutors, a lot of people in the trenches kind of, you know, doing the prosecution of the militias that, you know, tried to kidnap the governor in Michigan and whatnot. Um, you know, I think we've got to keep speaking the truth and doing it again and again and again. You know, we know that part of the the propagandist playbook is to to repeat a lie and just keep repeating it and keep repeating it. You know, that has weaponized and all that the, that that marketing theory all goes back to Freud's cousin who wrote the the playbook propaganda back in the day that the the madman of the fifties used to use in New York City. Um, we need to use those same techniques, but doing it with speaking truth. And I think that's kind of part of the tack that the January 6th select committee has been do- using, you know, just put it out there for everyone, put it on the world's biggest TV camera. Well, that's why I created Maya Culpa. It's why I put out Disloyal. Yeah. And that's why I'm putting out Revenge. It's exactly my hope is, look, the people who will read it, I want more than just the people who read Disloyal, the people who believe in in me, right? Who believe in um, speaking truth to power. My hope is really that those that don't believe in me, the haters, right? That they actually read it and that they read it with clear eyes. That they, you know, go into the book without prejudice without a preconceived notion that I am some fucking dirt scumbag that worked for Donald Trump doing his dirty. And I say this all the time. I want people to understand Donald Trump is a fucked up human being. He has no empathy for anybody. He's a he's a real scumbag for a boss. However, he's not a murderer. 
The Trump Organization was not Murder, Inc. We didn't go around killing people, dragging their bodies at nighttime to Central Park, digging up a hole somewhere and throwing the body in. Right? That's not what the Trump Organization did. Did he fuck over a lot of contractors? Yes. That's New York real estate for you. Go, go find me another developer that a contractor is not going to say he got fucked over from. And I was the guy who ended up doing all of the fucking over. Should I have done it? I don't know. I was a lawyer. Was I a sharp elbow lawyer? Sure. Was I better than the others? Absolutely. Right? Did I play with the media in order to try to bolster him when he was running? Despite the fact, and it was easy, because none of us ever thought he was going to win. In fact, he didn't want to win. How crazy is that? This was always designed to be the greatest infomercial in the history of U.S. politics. But somewhere along the line, like a Stuart Rhodes, like a, a Jim Jones, right, from the Jonestown Massacre, yeah. the guy has enough ability, he's got charisma, and he says things that are popularist, that people start to listen to him, and the son of a bitch ends up winning. Now, we never thought he was going to be this vile human being. The first thing out of the White House would be a Muslim ban. We spoke for a year and a half about what the first bill coming out of the White House should be. The infrastructure bill. And that's why he constantly talked about, who knows more about me than infrastructure? No one. Quite frankly, I know more about infrastructure than anybody ever. Right? That's what I do. That's what he was supposed to do. And had this asshole listened, he would have been unstoppable in the second term. But he had to follow the likes of a, of a Steve Bannon, who I equate to a Stuart Rhodes. They are the same type of person. But I do want to ask you this, because I, I don't want to get off of January 6th. You said before the January 6th committee that the intention of the Oath Keepers on the 6th was to spark an armed revolution. You also said you fear what might happen during the next election cycle. Now, clearly, things have heated up since then, including with the, now the raid on, by the FBI on Mar-a-Lardo. To your knowledge, are there, are there still organized paramilitary groups preparing for chaos at the polls and perhaps creating a civil war in the wake of an election ion if it doesn't go their way? And do you see the midterms turning violent? I, I think there are. I, I have to assume there are. And I think we can see some clear demonstrable proof with that with just, you know, what happened with the uh, the FBI field office with the guy going there with an AR-15 and trying to, you know, he wound up getting killed. You got the guy who ran his turned his lit his car on fire and ran it into a Capitol roadblock. But more scary than that, because that's just people on the peripheral. That's just that fringe element, those lone wolves that have been inspired to do something crazy. And and you're right in that, you know, um, earlier you had said these people seem very disenfranchised. And it's much like we see with actual Nazi groups and the, their recruiting tactics where they are going after people that don't have much going on in their lives. They may have a lot of self-confidence issues um, and they're giving them something to live for, something that's bigger than them, something that's going to save the country. Um, and so I, and, and when you have disenfranchised people and, and inject an emotional rhetoric that they feel really connects and that they're being heard. Um, it, it really can, can take and motivate a community of people. Um, 
And I think right now we're kind of in a holding pattern. I think, you know, the, 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 the spotlight has really scattered people right now that they are, you know, they, they've fallen back to the shadows and they're waiting and watching to see what happens. And I think it's going to be crucial. These, these prosecutions, whether it be with Trump or whether it be with Stuart Rhodes and, and, um, you know, just are, is there any legal account held? Because if there's not, if, if again, and we, we've seen this with all of these armed standoffs starting from Bundy Ranch on, there has been zero account held for the leaders of these, these, these rebellions, these, these standoffs, right? Where we're literally pointing assault rifles over at, at, you know, federal law enforcement, no account has been held. And that has been a bolstering and encouraging thing that has led us from uh, a small little failing uh, cattle ranch in the desert of Nevada to the steps of our capital with a, a gallows set up for Mike Pence. Where do we go from there? If these people are even more emboldened by nothing happening legally, and they're already setting up franchises across the country in local elections where does that lead us as a country that is not a place i want my my daughters growing up in and um so yeah i think i think that those organizations are still there i think we see them entrenching into local uh races and 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 you know political position in uh up in idaho specifically the pacific northwest i think texas and north texas is, is very much a hot spot right now i think florida i mean we had actual guys in nazi uniforms waving swastikas across the street from desantis's big shindig out there you know so i mean we are there now like there, there's literally a match being held a couple inches from a fuse and we're all just waiting to see whether it, it, you know, that it gets touched and diffused. Like, that's where we're at as a country. You know, it's a, just a deranged ideology. But I want to ask you this and just kind of staying on that point, because it's really fascinating, you know, to think about it. What do groups like the Oath Keepers expect to achieve with a civil war? Right? Because that's what it looks like. That There's a sort of like lawlessness within these types of groups. And again, it's all fueled by lies, right? And by a guy who's charismatic, who's just lying. So at the end of the day, and if they win the war, what's left, right? You're going to have like a Snake Plissken sort of, you know, escape from New York type of scenario. And if not, let me ask you this though. If not a civil society, right, then what's their end game? I mean, because these guys clearly, like yourself, they have family too. So what's Oath Keeper Utopia? What are they looking to achieve here? You know, I've had this conversation with people like um, a guy named Ernie Tretelgate, which you can find on Vice's Hate Thy Neighbor series. He used to be a neighbor of mine. Um, and, and even just speaking with Stuart Rhodes, you know, he lived in my basement for several months and, you know, just working with him every day. You know how it is. You get to know each other. You really kind of get to sure. get to the core of people. And for Stuart specifically, I think it is a feeding of this this ego and this 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 fantasy really that he has had that he would become this kind of clandestine heroic paramilitary leader, and I think he saw Trump as a way to move forward. With that I mean, at first Stuart didn't like Trump. First election, like I had to pull him to the to the polls and be like, dude, dude, you you literally the head of this this organization. You need to vote because he wasn't even going to vote. 
Um, so uh, at first, he really wasn't on the Trump train, but that quickly went away because I think he saw a lot of opportunity. And, uh, you know, it, it, if he were to be able to become a paramilitary leader under some, a president like Trump, it gives him a sense of legitimacy and, and authority. And I think that kind of gets at the core of, of some of his motivation. Yes, there was some financial, but he wasn't a successful financer, uh, uh, you know, good at raising funds like Trump was. Not at all. It's a whole other character. He, Yes, he, he was able to raise quite a bit of funds, but nothing on the scale of Trump or Alex Jones. I think he was more ego-driven and um, really saw it as a way to further that. Now, other true believers, and I don't think Stewart's a true believer necessarily. I think he's a ship without a moral anchor, mm -hmm. um, just kind of heading to whichever harbor has the most views and has the most donations. Um, but there are true believers, you know, the the sovereign citizen folks. And I've I've asked them, like, all right, well, what does the world look like when you guys win? And I think to a large degree, that's a, a Christian nationalist um, tyranny, really. I think that uh, in some cases with the sovereign citizens, it's a collapse of, of the government and what we would term as true anarchy, um, which I do not think the human race is anywhere near ready for. Um, it, it truly is a doomsday um, handmaid's tale type reality. And that's what's scary because they're making progress. And, um, you know, we've we've got to do everything we can to try to to stop it and thwart it because uh, we're the ones who are seeing it now. So it, it's kind of on us to speak up and speak out because we do see it and we don't want and we do have families and we don't want our daughters to, to wind up in a world that looks so much like The Handmaid's Tale. Yeah, that's for sure. You know, when. When I was asked by, Con uh, by Congressman Elijah Cummings, what a truly unique and, and impressive and just, a, uh, just an empathetic human being, when he asked me to testify before the House Oversight Committee, I remember sitting with my wife and going through it, and we weighed the pros and the cons. And I have to be honest, um, I think there was one pro, which was telling the truth, um, and everything else was a con. Right. And I don't mean con is in like a Donald Trump con. I'm talking about a, a negative. Right. You did the same thing with the January 6th hearing. What's your life like now after those hearings? Because based on your testimony, which I'm going to, you know, pat you on the back, was obviously a brave thing to do. Had, your life has now been threatened. I got them. Um, you know, oh, yeah. last I checked. Violent criminals don't like to be exposed, even if it's just their motives. Because you gave context to the Oath Keepers and other paramilitary groups' participation on January 6th. And that can't have made them, you know, too happy with you. So are you now always, like me, looking over your shoulder, fearful of reprisal? Well, I, I'm not going to live in fear. Like I did a lot of soul searching when, cause I never thought like the last thing I thought in the world was I would actually wind up testifying before Congress in front of the world's biggest TV camera. I just, you know, they had a thousand other people. Like, why would they want my story? You know, the guy with tattoos on his face and wearing punk rock t-shirts. Um, why, why would they want to hear my words? But it turns out they did. 
Um, the universe just had something else in store. And, and my life has become just so surreal since then. I mean, from, from the moment of driving into the Capitol where you go through the, you know, the canine explosives checkpoint to having three guards with you everywhere you go. Um, you know, and I'm not a, I'm not a wealthy guy. I'm an artist. I'm a writer. So I have people asking all the time, like, do you have a security team? And I, I just have to laugh at it. Like, <laughs> No, I don't. I've got a dog. Um, but in the end, you know, look, this is important. And if, if my words can help make things better for my daughters, I'm going to, I'm going to do that. And I need to show my kids, like, it's okay to fuck up, but you need to make good on it too. You gotta, you gotta do some work to try to make things better. Um, you know, I, I'm sure you run into the same thing, you know, just going to the grocery store becomes a stressful event. Because you know when you go to that grocery store, there are going to be several people there that you've never seen before that know who you are and are probably going to approach you. And, you know, you have that moment of, oh, shit, when you see someone, hey, I know you, you know, yelling from across the parking lot. And you're thinking to yourself, all right, is this guy going to try to, to punch me in the face or is he going to try to shake my hand? Um Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, that that's something you got to deal with. Just like if I got to go buy, you know, milk for the house, I've got to think of that every time I go out. But in the end, you know, I, I've also been like, uh, you know, I'm, I'm still doing the same thing I've always done, which is writing and making art and, you know, podcasting. And I'm going to keep doing that. The only thing that's changed is that a lot more people know who I am. And I've, I've always kind of had the belief, you know, when you're doing local journalism, half the town hates you at any given point. Now it'll flip, you know, the, the next week. But when you're talking about real stuff, half of that population is going to hate you on a regular basis. And you just have to be okay with that. And I've kind of just taken on the banner that if, if I'm not doing something, you're, if you're not getting regular death threats, you're not doing something right. And you know what? It just, it's a barometer to say, we're doing the right things. We're making a difference. Yeah. Listen, I couldn't um, agree with you anymore. It's, it's an experience every night that I, if I go out with my wife uh, and, you know, friends or just my wife by ourselves, you know, for a dinner, there's the staring, there's the, oh, you yeah. know who that is, you know, when you, even when you're walking there or you take you know, cab, how many cabs have I gotten in? All of a sudden the cab driver's like, oh, I know you. And then he wants All to get out and take, days. yeah, and then take a <laughs> selfie. So, you know, that's, that I'm okay with, you know, because the guy wants to shake your hand. I've had a handful, um, you know, where they'll throw a Snapple bottle at you from across the street. Oh, yeah. I had a guy in a restaurant, I was with my parents in Florida and Boca, you know, this asshole in the restaurant decides that he wants to sit there start yelling trump 2024 you know standing by my so i said to my mom you know we were having uh steak so i said if he doesn't get out of here i'm gonna stab this motherfucker in the leg with this fucking you know steak knife i'm steak like knife. <laughs> i mean you know th this fucking asshole is just sitting you know i'm there with my parents i hadn't seen my parents in a while because i wasn't permitted to travel because of this bullshit, you know, um, supervised release and home confinement issue that I was on before. Yeah, it's, I want to have a nice meal with my parents. And yeah, I, I appreciate the guy, he's entitled to vote for whoever the fuck he wants to vote for in 2024. I don't care. But I'm not interested. Look 
right? You be you and let me be me, right? You go enjoy your meal while I'm sitting enjoying my meal with my parents. And it's, you know, and again, you know, my parents are, you know, are up there, you know, in age and they just didn't need to be bothered by this guy who, what, what did he want to do? He wanted to call me out. Guy was like five foot four, Right? He looked like he probably weighed 200 pounds, 5'4". I, you know, I would have taken him and fucking tossed him, you know, like, you know, like, like, um, like a, I don't even know, like what, like a little mini weight? You know, I mean, he's just an asshole that for some reason felt compelled to, you know, stick, try to stick it into my face. But look, let me ask you, let me, yeah. We're just going to have to accept the fact that we're going to be America's assholes for a while. You know, we're, we're kind of in that middle ground where, you know, segments of both sides are always going to hate us. And all we can do, actually, we're working on a series treatment right now for a docuseries that's going to cover conspiracy theories. And the working title we've got for it is The Accidental Asshole. Because, you know, we're just going to, that's us right now. That's our, that's our part to play. And that's okay. Eventually, the world will get over it. But for now, you're always going to be the Trump guy. And I'm always going to be the Oath Keepers guy. That's just our lot right now. So yeah, you, you know, know, I've been fortunate though because I've been just so out there from the time that I testified before the House uh, to the book, and then the second and television and press. You know, the Donald Trump that I knew, he was always an asshole. Don't get me wrong, right? But the Donald Trump that I knew, working for for over ten years is not the Donald Trump that you see today. He has become the worst version of himself imaginable. This man has decided that being the 45th president of the United States, it's, the United States is not enough for him. He wants to, at this point, elevate past that, right? Because that goal, let's just say, has been achieved. He wants to be a monarch, a dictator. He wants to be the Fuhrer, he, you know, this is who he wants to be. And you and I and many others are in his way. And that's, again, what this book is about, which is when you weaponize the Justice Department to go against your critics so that he could attain what it is that he wants. And this is scary shit. Think about having, you know, Kim Jong-un times two as your supreme leader, because that's what Donald Trump is. But I have a two-part question for you. All right. Sure. What's the fascination that paramilitary groups have with the American Revolution? And why do paramilitary types line up behind Trump? I mean, in all fairness, let, we have to really call, call this out for what it is. Trump is just a rich asshole from New York City. They have absolutely nothing in fucking common at all. He's not, a, he's not patriotic, right? He famously got out of the draft with bullshit bone spurs that I had to handle, right? And he wouldn't know George Washington from fucking Santa Claus. So what's the draw? I, I think it's, again, it's this kind of cultural mythology that has come up. And, and we are a country that was founded on rebellion. I mean, I think so much of rock and roll culture and, and punk rock culture and just American culture is founded on the idea. We said, fuck you. And that was the birth of our country. And, you know, it, it, they have taken and, and, you know, they're really good at weaponizing these, these mythologies and, you know, the whole notion of the, the 3% comes from, the revolutionary idea that 3% of the population stood up to the British crown. 
So, you know, it, it in part is due to this mythology building and just the, the, the notion of what we have had since the time we were born that we are a country of rebels, of, of you know, that we, we, we as a country have said fuck you for so long. Um, so, yeah, I, I don't know. And as far as Trump goes, why, why they are, are looking for Trump is because they're really looking for anyone and anyone who's willing to step up to say, I'll be that guy. And if you look at the way, you know, QAnon specifically, I mean, if you look at the techniques that QAnon has used and employed, I don't know if you're familiar with something called an alternative reality game. Um, it's something that started off, you know, like Nine Inch Nails with one of their albums had this alternative reality game in ARG. Um, the Batman uh, movie with uh, Heath Ledger the, as a Joker, they had an ARG. Halo, the video game, had an mm -hmm. ARG where they're creating these experiences throughout the Internet and through different phone lines and through, you know, actual interactions in real life to, to foster a, a narrative. Um, I actually know the guy who spearheaded a lot of that type of, you know, that type of game and marketing because it was a marketing ploy. And, um, you know, he is saying now that this is what QAnon has done, except that, you know, in these games, when you're playing them, like at every step along the way where they're telling you this is just a game, this is not real, you know. And they still had people problems with people believing it was real. So, you know, I think part of it is just kind of this this weaponization of things like ARGs, the blast furnaces that, you know, Facebook and these different social media groups have become, you know, it helped to sell this image that Trump was um, this this hero coming in. Well, well that, let, let know, me stop you. Let me stop because I was one of the people that were pushing the Trump lie about who he is and so on to get people to vote for him. It made sense. So let me just go back for a second. Talk. You brought up, you know, um, we've been a country of rebels telling everyone, fuck you, right? And so on. Even if we take it back to Washington and King George when, you know, we said, fuck you, we want freedom, right? There's the word, freedom. Yeah. We, wanna, we want to control our own destinies. Then we had the Civil War, North versus South, right? Why? Because... Many people believed that black or white, you should have freedoms. So I go All right back to that same equal. word. All men are created equal, exactly. All right, then you go on and you start looking at, you know, World War I, right? And World War II, the annihilation, genocide, etc. What did people want? They wanted their freedom. They didn't want to be ruled, all right? That's not what Donald Trump is about. Donald no. Trump is the exact opposite. He wants to rule you. And that's what makes it so scary that there's so many people there that, that are out there in this country that today want to vote for him. When we were running in 2016, remember, his argument was that government is corrupt. And every person will tell you, yeah, it's true. Right? You have your politicians legally allowed to insider trade. What kind of bullshit is that? They're different than you and I. They have better health care for life because they won one fucking election. This is wrong. And then what does Donald Trump come out and say? I'm really rich. Really, really rich. I don't need anybody. I don't need their support. I don't need their money. I need your support because I'm going to do for you what I did for myself in building a multi-billion dollar company. He 
fooled the world with his lies. He told stories about what he was going to accomplish. He then got even worse and started talking about people's innate hatred of others, right? Because we are the giant melting pot of the world. This is what Donald Trump did. And then he realized through the likes of people like Steve Bannon, that that hatred, my hatred for you, your hatred for me is stronger than your hatred for government and wanting government not to represent themselves, but to represent us as a collective. That's the problem. And what I try to do, and you and so many others, is I try to open up people's eyes, but so many of them are so fucking brainwashed that you would have to split their head in half in order to get them to change their mind. For me, you know what it ended up taking? Going to prison, staring at these fucking white gross, ugly cinder blocks, listening to a bunch of old men there at Otisville farting all night long. The food sucked, you know, missing the shit out of my family. I had a picture on the side by my bed. I used to sit there at nighttime and I just, with my mind, I used to just draw my wife's face, my children's faces. And, you know, and you can't cry in prison, so you cry inside and it rips, it shreds your soul to pieces and you never get past it. And then I realized that I'm here not because of what I did. That's the lie that I talk about in revenge. But I'm there because of campaign finance violations and the fact that Donald Trump took his mushroom dick and, you know, got it pulled by a fucking porn star. That, that's yeah. what it's and all you're about. You're the only one done it so far. 100%. Yeah, I mean, you you are a sacrifice. <laughs> that, that's right. So let me ask this to you How do we, you and I, and anyone else with a platform, wake up other brainwashed people. Because cults, as you know, they're really hard to leave. I've had a couple of cult experts on this show. Now, I do this show trying, really trying hard to educate my audience. And I learn a lot from my guests, like, from you know, from you. But I don't think your typical MAGA Trump lover is listening. He's not listening to the show. He's not listening to me. They're not listening when I'm on MSNBC, CNN, ABC, NBC. They're listening to Fox, OAN, and Newsmax. Do you actively seek to help other Oath Keepers or guys like them break free? Yeah, I'm, I'm hoping my, my story will resound. And, you know, I don't think we can really get to the people that are just have jumped in feet first. But it's the people that are on the edge now. That, that are looking at it and, and being pulled into it. I think that's where we can do the most good. Um, but I do think that doing what we're doing, and again, like we, we just demonstrated how the truth has no bearing on things, really. If you've got a good spin going, you know, you can, you can put out there whatever lies and bullshit you want. And if you approach it right, people are going to believe it. And, and MAGA has showed us that a large number of people will believe it. Um, so I think we need to look at that. But and I get asked this a lot, especially you know, doing the, the speaking engagements to Georgetown Law and the work I did with the International Center for the Study of Violent Extremism. Like, how do how do we get past this? Like, what are the best things? And unfortunately, the bad news is there is no easy answer. There is no light switch we can just flip to off and everything's better. This is something that's going to take years and years to really begin to see traction. But I think we have some things going for us. I think human connection and good storytelling is really one of the best tools we have in our toolbox. And I think you're on in the right vein with, 
you know, talking to the experts that have worked with people that are breaking away from cults. I need to, I think we really need to look at the phenomenon of cults and what, you know, the data we've gathered over, over the years with getting people out of cults and getting them away from the brainwashing. And we need to look at how we can use those techniques to, to try to deprogram some of this, this, this wiring that's gone into people's heads and and really return to a sense of normalcy because no one wins in the direction we're going right now. What no matter what side you're on, we're all fucked um, if we continue moving the direction as a country that we are. Um, you know, the whole last chapter of my book is is going to be, um, you know, what are the resources that are out there for people who have been in situations like mine, um, you know, similar situations where they're ready to to step back from the precipice and, and begin trying to engage in a normal life again. So, you know, I, unfortunately there are no quick, easy answers, but I think we've got some, some places we can look at to, to try to heal as a country again. And, and, you know, I think even just having human conversations, once again, trying to reach across, cause we've really lost the, the ability. If we have a political divide and, you know, your, your crazy uncle Bob, you know, all he's talking about is is parroting Trump's uh, talking points. Um, we've got to get to back to a point where we can have civil conversations. And I think that starts with just us reaching out instead of just blocking the friend that that is spouting off on something that you just are not OK with. And you normally hit that block button or just stop engaging. I, I think we need to reach out and and try to have these conversations. And it's not going to be easy. You know, our country is riddled with these these periods of unrest that i call growing pains we as a country have done some of the most amazing things in the world you know we did get rid of slavery we did give women the right to vote we did provide you know reproductive health care for women we are grappling with the growing pains of that now and that's what we're seeing with you know figuring our shit out and and here in colorado where i live you know, we've, we've been labeled the hate state um, because of the early legislation that happened with, you know, gay marriage. But that was part of the process. Part of the process of getting to a better place is going, through, you know, grappling with these issues and figuring them out. I still have hope for this country in that we're going through some really hard growing pains right now. But I, I've got to have faith. I've got to have faith that we're going to figure our shit out. And and get to a better place. Not when you have <laughs> not when you have the number of politicians that are uh, election deniers that are Trumpists. Not even pro-Trump. They just believe in Trumpism, and these are the ones that are now winning their primaries. If they end up taking seats, right? I mean, you. I don't have to tell you. You know the damage that they're going to cause to this. You know, to this country, and you know it's. They are rabid, they are raging, and that's how they end up promoting themselves in front of their, you know, their audience, right? Their constituents. They're not even constituents anymore. It's more of an audience, right? Let's just play to the audience. Let's say the most vile, disgusting things that you can say, right? Because it's popular in that area. But look, Jason, here on Mea Culpa, things go by very quickly, right? And as we come to the end, right, uh, the end of the hour, I have just one last question, you know, for you. Kind sure. of a, more of a personal one. Because you have your book coming out in February. And, you know, congratulations. And I have mine, which is coming out in October. Um, well, hey, send me a copy of yours. I'll send you a copy of mine. Deal. I'll autograph it for you. But... <laughs> 
if you would, tell me a little more about it. Because obviously the title is self-explanatory, The Perils of Extremism, How I Left the Oath Keeper, and Why We Should Be Concerned About a Future Civil War. I mean, there's no, there's no surprise that mine is revenge. You're not really sure where that one's going, right? But <laughs> lots of us write books right, to um, exercise ourselves from intense chapters of our lives. Um, in essence, so that we can move on. I have not been able to do that yet. I mean, I'm, I'm, I suffer every day. Um, have you moved on at all since writing your book? And if so, like, to what extent? I'm, I'm hoping that the book is, is a vehicle that will help me to move on. Like, I am ready to move on. Um, you know, the world has a different notion on that because they, they suddenly the world wants to hear this story. Um, the book goes over really my experiences from day one of of getting embedded with Stuart Rhodes and traveling down to an armed standoff. Um, and and keep in mind, like I'm just some punk rock guy from Colorado who happened to 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 be good enough at social engineering to to get embedded in with Stuart Rhodes going down to an armed government standoff. Um, and it takes you through my coverage. It takes you through. Um, my actually accepting a job with the Oath Keepers and becoming more and more indoctrinated, um, the process of that. And then that, that, that oh shit moment where I kind of got shaken back to myself, like, what the fuck am I doing? What did I, you know, and, and then talking about the process from that point on, you know, kind of going into a reclusive hiding mode. You know, I did a lot of work for many years with some of the top shelf journalists in the country, but always off the record. You know, I, I, I had a network of journalists that would call me up and, and ask me for things. And it was always stated like, this is off the record. Like, do not use my name in anything. And then I made the decision in September of last year to allow one, one article be, you know, have a, a section of quotes attributed to me. And uh, that just set off the avalanche, which, which led us to where we are today. And, um, you know, talking about the the just the experience of um, the the congressional hearings and that whole process, because it's not just that, you know, 45 minutes I was in front of the select committee. This was something Nine that hours. went on for. Yeah. For, <laughs> you know, it, it went on for you know months. I, I, I had been to Washington beforehand. It's just a long process. So just talking about that. But more than anything. So there have been books written about the Oath Keepers, but they're generally written by academics that are in their ivory towers and university. They don't have any actual real life human experience. So, you know, I, I, I got back to my roots of saying, you know what, I did go through this experience. And I think it's a story people want and need to hear right now to, to see the truth of how an organization like the Oath Keepers functions from the inside out. Because I got just a bird's eye view, you know, for a year and a half of, of how Stuart Rhodes and keep, keep in mind, you know, the Oath Keepers starts and ends with Stuart Rhodes. That is the entire command and control structure of the Oath Keepers. Um, but it was, you know, just a, a regular guy's view of what is happening with this group that wound up storming the Capitol and, and almost becoming a paramilitary wing for a dictatorial rogue president. Yeah. Well, Jason Van Tattenhove, let me thank you for joining me today. I'm Mea Culpa. Um, I wish you the best with the book if you... You know, stay in touch. Um, I will do the same, you know, with you because Absolutely. we have we have a big job ahead of us. We have 90 days out. And the more that we can speak truth to power, the better off I believe the country will be. So thank you for joining me. Stay safe. 
Um, and I will definitely see you soon. All right. Thanks for having me on, Michael. You got it. And now for today's mea culpa. It used to irritate me when people would compare some aspect of our government or legal system with the Taliban. Even as much as I loathe Trump, I never liked anyone using the term American Taliban to describe his presidency or the administration. It just seemed like a gross overstatement, but then as things shifted and the Supreme Court banned abortion, the U.S. started to feel like it was leaning towards a handmaid's tale or some other dystopian nightmare. But again, not the Taliban, not until recently. Perhaps I became aware of it in the aftermath of the Uvalde school massacre, when leaders and law enforcement took active measures to erase the truth of what went down there and replace it with silence. Anger at anyone who dared ask real questions, we were told it was disrespectful to the families of the slain children to ask questions or to show the footage of police lined up in a hallway trying themselves not to get killed. But Texas has been in the business of whitewashing and erasing the truth for a while now. Every morning, school children in Texas recite an oath to their state that includes the words, I pledge allegiance to thee, Texas, one state under God. But Republican lawmakers in Texas are trying to reframe Texas' history lessons and play down references to slavery and anti-Mexican discrimination that are part of the state's founding and replace it with silence and bullshit. So nearly a dozen other Republican-led states are now trying to ban or limit how the role of slavery and the effects of racism can be taught in schools. Florida is one of those states, of course. I mean, they just cranked up the bullshit machine to have some math books rewritten to reframe what? Math? Well, a Florida Department of Education review of 132 math books, I mean, folks, you can't make this shit up, has led to the banning of more than 40% of them due to what the state calls prohibited topics, including critical race theory and social-emotional learning. I mean, are you fucking kidding me? Their excuse for lying to our school children is that the history, math, and English can indoctrinate children by telling them what? The truth? Re-education campaigns, parents' rights in education, don't say gay, banning books, I mean, what the fuck? This is the work of the American Taliban. Slant the perspective of the news to reflect Christian nationalism. That's the work of the American Taliban. A Supreme Court that bans abortion and reduces women to second-class citizens is the work of the American Taliban. I mean, there is no fucking virtue in this oppressive approach to education. It's just an excuse to keep the white man in power a little longer. But rewriting history isn't going to change it. The last census projects that by 2045, whites will become the minority in America. And we better hope that whoever gets to write history next isn't kind to the American Taliban because America won't be great again until we live with the truth and truly learn from it. And more importantly, thanks for listening. Mea Culpa is brought to you by Audio Up, Midas Touch, and LSJ Media, written by Jimmy Jelinek and Paula Killen. 
Our editor and managing producer is Lisa Orkin. Our executive producers are Jared Gustad, Jimmy Jelinek, and myself, Michael Cohen, along with Phil Alberstadt. It may be a new day politically, but nowadays the landscape is more confusing than ever. Donald Trump may have lost the battle for the presidency, but in many ways, Trumpism is still winning the war on the state and local level. Maya Culpa is here to help guide you through the wilderness and keep you informed. And let's face it, we all want Trump, Rudy, and the rest of these seditious traitors to see justice. And folks, I promise you, it's coming. So stay tuned as I guide you through the twists and turns of the criminal process that will ultimately see them behind bars. Mea culpa, nothing but the truth.